ignition sequence start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shank. This is Everything Sounds. There's a musician who had a box set of his music win three Grammys in 2003. Now, this wouldn't be as notable if he hadn't have died in 1934. The information about his birth is a little conflicting, but it was likely sometime between 1887 and 1891 in Hines County, Mississippi. The legend goes that his voice could carry 500 yards without amplification, and that it was just as gravelly and rough as the dirt roads he traveled on. Decades before Jimi Hendrix would ever pick up a guitar, people claimed he played on his knees or behind his head and his back. In 1929, he grabbed his guitar and hopped on a train in Jackson, Mississippi. on that train for over 600 miles until he reached the station in Richmond, Indiana. He hopped off the train and started walking in the June heat. And walking through the town, he probably attracted some attention. You didn't see many African Americans in that area in 1929. In fact, over a quarter of a million Ku Klux Klan members lived in Indiana in the 1920s. He probably didn't know it, but what he was about to do would have an enormous impact on American music. He had never been involved in a recording session, but he recorded a dozen songs that day. His name was Charlie Patton, and many people call him the father of the Delta Blues. He's been revered by artists including John Lee Hooker, Howlin' Wolf, Bob Dylan, John Fogarty, Jack White, and countless others. How did such a landmark recording in the history of blues music end up taking place in Richmond, Indiana? To answer that question, we've enlisted the help of Rick Kennedy. Uh, Rick Kennedy and the author of Jelly Roll Bixen Hoagie. Rick moved to Richmond in 1980 and lived there for three years. Although it doesn't seem like it would be a hotbed of musical activity compared to places like New York, Chicago, or L.A., Richmond was actually the home of the Star Piano Company and Jeanette Records. That's spelled G-E-N-N-E-T-T. It's not like the woman's name. And seeing as Rick had a passion for early blues and jazz, to him, it was a pretty good place to be. However, when Rick arrived, the community hadn't yet recognized its own musical legacy. A few years passed and Rick started thinking about writing a book in the late 1980s about the history of Jeanette Records and the Star Piano Company. He moved from Richmond a few years later, but he still had the book on his mind, and he had some ideas about where he could start. When I lived in Richmond, I ran into a lot of people who were elderly who had retired from the Star Piano Company, and that was a wonderful thing. So just an informal uh, gatherings, just being a reporter in town, and I really got a good flavor for how the Star Piano Company, how important it was to the community, their relationship to Jeanette Records, which they thought was just some goofy offshoot. No one took it seriously. Rick knew it was worth documenting, so he began conducting interviews in the early 90s. And if he had waited much longer, some of that history may have been lost entirely. Many members of the Jeanette family, former employees, and musicians passed away soon after Rick was able to get their stories. 
I mean, literally within weeks or months after I'd interviewed some of these folks, they passed away. He also had an excellent resource that helped him fill in many of the gaps in the history of the label. There's a guy by the name of John McKenzie, who during the 1960s was fanatical about Jeanette and had interviewed employees and musicians associated with the label. And then he passed away as a young man in the 1980s and all of his transcripts had been made available to the Indiana Historical Society. And without those, I probably couldn't have done the book. The Star Piano Company was founded in 1872 by James Starr. They had additional investors by the turn of the century, and some of those investments came from the Jeanette family. Henry Jeanette was the major investor in James Starr's Piano Star Company. Starr became one of the 10 largest piano manufacturers in the country between 1910 and 1915. And in 1915, they decided to expand their business into phonographs and recordings. Now, they already had a studio set up in Manhattan. But later, they decided to have another studio closer to home. And then in 1921, they put a second studio in Richmond, Indiana, in a very primitive storage shed along the river. And it was really in that recording studio in Richmond where their most important records were done. We'll tell you more about those important records later, but to really appreciate them, you need to know why Rick referred to the studio as primitive. That doesn't mean that Jeanette didn't have the resources to build a proper studio. They just didn't have the knowledge. Recording was so new back then, it wasn't really established how to build a studio like we know it today. Sawdust was put in between the walls for insulation, and they had curtains on the walls, which were kind of like a 1920s version of foam acoustic tiles. And not only that, the president of the company, Harry Jeanette Jr., he brought a rug into the studio, but he didn't put it on the ground. He brought a big mohawk rug, and he hung it on the wall so that that would serve to deaden the sound, take the resonance out of the little room. But it couldn't help them out in some situations. If there were problems, for example, if the train was coming across the ridge of the Whitewater Valley, it'd create vibration and noise, so they'd have to stop recordings for that. Lots of little hassles like that, but no one seemed to care. On top of that, the studio was always hot. Even in the winter months, it would be above 80 degrees because they had a potbelly stove in the room. That wasn't just for warmth. They actually had to keep the blank recording wax soft so that it wouldn't harden. There was also a wall, which the recording engineer, Ezra Wickemeyer. Wickemeyer? Wickemeyer. Yes. Ezra Wickemeyer sat behind. He would play snippets of the recordings back to the artists, and they would be surprised at what they heard. It was new, and it was exciting, and no one had ever experienced being recorded before. And Mary McKay told me, so that was just a shocking experience. The first time you heard yourself recorded and played back to you, so it sounded like, you know, I was coming from Mars. It sounded like some other time and place, and the musicians were astounded by the experience. Musicians might have been nervous coming into a recording session to begin with, but stakes were even higher once the recording started. 78 RPM records had limited space to use, and if they made mistakes, there was no way to edit anything. They'd either have to start over on a new disc or keep the mistake in the song. So their songs not only needed to be short, but they also needed a high energy level to play the song and keep it under three minutes. Some musicians were better at handling that pressure than others. 
a guy like Big Spiderback, who was 20, 21 years old, one of the great jazz improv improvisers ever, it's remarkable how disciplined and his execution was so precise that he was able to do these records in a couple takes. They typically took three takes of each song. Uh, but today, you know, they can stay on one song for days in the studio. And sometimes you lose some of the energy associated with recording when you do that. And not everyone pulled it off like Bix. Like Craig said, a high energy level was important and time was a concern, but too much energy? Well, that can lead to other problems. There's a great record by a blues artist named William Harris, one of the first Delta artists, and he starts a song like three times too fast on a Jeanette recording. And as he starts singing, he just has to slow it down, and they just waxed it and ran with it. There it was. No retake. Have you ever walked with them? Put rocks on you. Put rocks on you. I mean, man, have you ever woke up, mama? Put rocks on you, man. Even Hoagy Carmichael, who had an amazing career and composed some of the most recorded songs in American history, was early in his career when he recorded at Jeanette and intimidated by the process. During his original recording of Stardust, he's put a, he put a 32-bar solo in the middle of it, except he goes 33 bars, and no one really knows when to come back into the record. The original Stardust is a pretty shaky record because... Nobody had written arrangements. It's just a miracle they got through the whole song. Hoagie basically sung the arrangements to the musicians and did it that way. Those examples are part of the reason the Jeanette story is so unique. They had a fairly hands-off approach. If a musician wanted to do a session, they needed to bring along their own band. Unlike Sun Studios, Motown, or Stax, Jeanette didn't have a rhythm section or studio musicians to fill in. Also, artists could usually record their original compositions and the label didn't interfere with the process. That created some records that are now prized, not in spite of, but because of their rough edges. So people particularly like Jeanette recordings in country western and blues and jazz because it's pure and authentic. Many of the labels at that time were dictating what songs a musician would have to record so they could promote the sheet music, or they might tell them that we want to trim this rough edge off or this edge off. Some of the Jeanette records are so raw. I mean, in their vocal expression, the way the musicians played, that you kind of listen to them and go, wow, they just basically turn on the machine and let them go. One session that technically had some of those rough edges and ended up being an important recording in the history of jazz was King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band. They arrived at the studio on April 5th, 1923. In this session, the band had to figure out the best time to record each song before another train rolled by. Aside from the issues with the studio's location, one of his band members was causing problems of his own. His second cornet player was so loud that he made the needle bounce on the recording wax. They decided to make him stand a few feet back from the rest of the band as they huddled around the recording horn.
That cornet player was young Louis Armstrong in his very first session. This is one of the earliest recordings of Louis that we have today, courtesy of Jeanette Records and the Richmond Studio. There are plenty of things that can and should be celebrated about Jeanette. Artists like Gene Autry, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Jelly Roll Morton, or any of the other artists we've already mentioned, or won't even have time to get to today, they all recorded their songs for the label. This allows us to still hear some of those popular songs of that era today. However, there was something slightly unusual about Jeanette, given the variety of artists that recorded there. We mentioned that Richmond had a fairly prominent Ku Klux Klan presence in the 1920s. Well, some of those Klansmen actually cut records in the Jeanette Studios. Each of the chapters of the Klan would sell these records. They would take a traditional hymn and change the lyrics, change the words of the hymns. So, you know, Cross by the Wildwood was Burning Cross by the Wildwood, or um, Onward Christian Klansmen was a very popular song. They'd pay their cash up front, and Jeanette would release them as vanity records. That means that they weren't distributed on the Jeanette label, but Jeanette would press them by the thousands, and they'd go out to clan chapters all over the state. It seems bizarre, but a studio that regularly hosted African-American musicians in the 20s had no issues with recording one of America's most notorious hate groups. On top of that, the Jeanettes were Italian-Americans and weren't associated with the KKK at all. Though, from the label and the family's perspective, it really wasn't that complicated. When it comes to recording, everything with the Jeanettes was just about the business. They didn't record jazz with an interest in jazz. They had no interest in country music. They did it purely looking for market niches. Given that they were in Richmond, it shouldn't be surprising that some of the employees at the Star Piano Company and Jeanette were clan members themselves. Apparently, just like the Jeanette family, their employees were willing to think of things only in terms of what was good for business. Though, it's still surprising to hear how far they could go. Remember when we mentioned the recording engineer earlier, Ezra Wickemeyer? Ezra Wickemeyer was a German chain-smoking studio engineer. He was the guy that recorded all these members, these great musicians. He was a member of the Klan, but took great care in recording King Oliver and Louis Armstrong, these African-American artists. And as the years go by, engineers continually respect more and more the records of Ezra Wickemeyer as the engineer. These were not easy things to produce in those days. Situations like that may seem difficult to rationalize, but Jeanette and their employees didn't have to support those contradictions for too much longer. The 20s was a great time for the recording industry because American music was finding its voice. However, they had to start competing with radio in the late 20s. Jeanette and other labels survived by lowering their prices and eventually getting their music played on the radio, but that victory was brief. But the Great Depression of the early 1930s just about killed the entire recording industry in this country. And that's what washed away Jeanette Records and Paramount Records and Vocalion and all these other great record labels would disintegrate. In the industry, there were many musicians who were active recording artists in the 1920s. And because of the Depression, would never return to the recording studio again. The Jeanette label closed in December of 1930. Their discount labels limped along for another four years until the masters were purchased by Decca Records, but despite the label's eventual demise, 
the music didn't disappear completely. One of the things about these early 78s, which is important, is that they were very expensive. You know, a record would cost often over a dollar. That's like going to iTunes today and paying $16 for one track. So because of that, people didn't throw their records away. I mean, even African-Americans who own these blues records, extraordinarily expensive, that we still find these records today. We're still discovering Jeanette recordings in better and better condition because they were coveted by the original owners and then passed through the family. People still held on to their 78s well into the 1960s, which is why we have really good examples of Jeanette recordings. These were not disposable items. You were forking up some serious money to buy them in their day, and people hung on to them. Even though the label was operating for just around two decades, the influence still exists. Rick is excited about the state of Jeanette's legacy and where it fits into the discussion of American music and culture. I'm very, very touched by the intimate story of Jeanette Records. I'm very proud of the fact that the community has now embraced that history. I love going to Richmond and seeing the murals of the, of the musicians. I think also it's a way to talk about race in America because there was great cooperation between the races that people don't quite understand. You know, Jeanette recorded interracial recordings both in the country western world and the jazz world. So I think it's just from living in this area and knowing that, you know, this small record label in Indiana made this extraordinary contribution. And even if Jeanette, or Richmond for that matter, aren't really known by many music fans, at least the music is still being heard. And I'm amazed all over this planet, people are aware of the artists that recorded for Jeanette. They may not know they were done in Richmond, but they certainly know who Jelly Roll Morton is and Louis Armstrong and these type of musicians. So it's given me appreciation for what a global impact these recordings have had from this small town. One day I sit thinking, when you rain down outside. One day I sit thinking, when you rain pour down outside Any more I thought thee, more I began to cry We've got links to find out more about Jeanette Records, their recording studio, and Rick's book, Jelly Roll, Bix, and Hoagie, at our website, everythingsounds.org. We've also got a list of the songs featured in this episode and some additional recommendations of songs recorded for Jeanette. If you're itching for more sound-related stories, photos, videos, or links in between episodes, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, among others, and we'll keep you updated with plenty of interesting sound-related content throughout the week. Just search for us on your social media platform of choice. You'll probably find us there. We have those links for you at everythingsounds.org. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate, along with shows such as Unprofessional, Evening Edition, and Impolite Company. You can find us at muleradio.net or in the Mule Radio app in the iTunes App Store. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shank. My days seem lonesome, and my nights they are so long. My days seem lonesome, and my nights they are so long. I'll be mighty glad when them old blue days are gone.